We're wrapping up a series where we've been looking at the parables of Jesus. We've been calling it Twisted Truths because a parable is a story that ends up having a twist in it, that ends up going in the direction that you might not expect it to go. And because it does so, it tells us something about God and our relationship with him. Um, I want to piggyback on top of what Denise said about next week. We're going to start something and we're going to try it for three weeks. Um, the early church met in courtyards. And so they came together in a more open place. They were circled around and there was more community kind of feel. So we're adding another service, as Denise mentioned, at nine o'clock. The 1035 service stays the same. We're going to broadcast this one on Zoom. Nothing will change with the 1035. We won't broadcast the nine o'clock one on Zoom, though. So if you want to, if you want to gather in a more informal context, there'll be some opportunity to ask questions. There'll be some opportunity to hear from other people as well. You won't be forced to say anything, but if you want, so it'll be more interactive. And, and that begins next week. We're going to try it for the 27th, the 3rd and the 10th. And then we're going to kind of figure out what do we think? And then if we kind of like it, we'll continue as a, we'll add it as a second worship service. We're thinking this morning about, as we think about, I might just say this one thing. Um, when we close this series out next week, following that around the Lenten season, we're going to think about Jesus' garden prayer. And we're going to join Jesus in the garden as he's speaking to the Father. And what he says to the Father the night before he knows he's going to return his last night on earth. And so we're going to look at that prayer uh, for four weeks. Uh, but this morning, we're thinking about Jesus. He has been speaking with the disciples and been telling them about the challenges that they're going to face when he leaves. He says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus exhorts his disciples, the 12, to sell their possessions and give charitably to the poor. He stresses using their resources in a way that benefits other people, benefits other people in need who don't have what they need to be able to provide for what they need on a day-to-day -day basis. He exhorts them to do this because he's aware that when he leaves, persecution is going to come in a way that it hadn't been present, and it might lead them to losing some of their possessions. If they cling to their possessions, it might be that they will sever their connection with Jesus. And, and this seemed to be an issue in the early church. Um, in the letter to the Hebrews, he talks about some of the things that happened early on when you were a Jew and you became a Christian. It talks about some of the dynamics. It says, remember, those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. 
You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. You see what happened? They clung to their role as representatives of Jesus more tightly than they clung to their possessions. So when their possessions were taken, they didn't follow their possessions, they followed Jesus. And what the writer to the Hebrews tells them, remember you did that? Because what ended up happening um, when you were a Christian in the decades following, um, it you didn't necessarily have your best life now. It was hard to get a job. And the jobs you got were not really good jobs for those Jews who were now in the Roman Empire. Um, Jesus ends up saying to them, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, I heard somebody put it this way, whatever captures your mind, captures your heart and becomes your true objective. Whatever captures your mind, captures your heart and becomes your true objective. We might say our, my true objective is X, but if I'm not really thinking about X a lot, it's really not my true objective. And that's what Jesus says, one is loyal to the things one values most. Pursuing the kingdom, Jesus says, means caring for others. It, rather than yourself, to show concern for others rather than for oneself, is at the heart of Jesus' teaching. He wants his disciples, especially those he is addressing, the 12, to value service, not serve us. It's service for somebody else, not serve us, S-E-R-V-E dash U-S. Not that, S-E-R-V-I-C-E, service, not serve us. Um, he uses a parable to drive the point home. Tells them, be dressed, ready for service. What that means to be dressed and ready for service, they used to wear long robes. And so if you were going to go somewhere and, and you were going to try to run somewhere and you had a long robe on, you couldn't run around in a long robe. So what you did, they had a belt, and so you'd kind of tuck it into your belt. And that's the way you were ready. And so if you said, boy, you know, i got to be ready because any minute I might be called to do something, what the, the, the kind of the image is, you tuck your robe in. And so that you didn't have to, you wouldn't trip over. Be dressed. Ready, tuck your robe around your waist and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve. will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Jesus compares his disciples to servants who are awaiting their master's return from a wedding banquet. That could take, wedding banquets in those days were affairs. They could take anywhere from three days to like a week. And so um, he tells them to, again, stand and be ready to do what he wants. Um, portray somebody instead of waiting is it, always is at a position where they're always ready to act. There was a short story. I'm just going to read the end of it. It's called The Call. And what happens in the story, I'll, I'll keep, I don't want to read the whole thing. I want to read the end. There's a sitter and a stander. The sitter is at a coffee 
place with a phone on the table, waiting to receive the call. And that's the sitter. The stander is standing, hey, nice to see you. And, and the stander sees all these catastrophes. This guy, he just told that woman's purse, and the, the stander runs to the person and aids them, and the sitter sits and sips on his lemonade because he's waiting for the call. Now, end the story. We'll read the ending of this short story. What's the matter with you? The stander said. Why didn't you come with me? The sitter lifted his head and glared. Because I didn't get the call. What call? The girl asked, exasperated. The, the call, he answered, looking skyward. The girl threw up her hands. I don't. All at once, she noticed something else down the street. Oh, did you see that? She asked, putting her hand to her mouth. That car just took a left and plowed right into the motorcycle. Now, come on, don't just sit there. We've got to help. The sitter sipped his iced tea. I'm sorry, he said, unconcerned. But I'm just not called. The girl started to run in the direction of the accident. What are you studying anyways? She shouted at him over her shoulder. First aid, he said placidly, returned to his reading. Three minutes later, the girl was back, so exhausted she could barely stand. I've got to use your phone, she said, gasping for breath. What? The sitter cried, suddenly alert. I've got to call an ambulance for that guy, she panted, and reached for the shining white telephone. The sitter leaped from his chair, wrestling the phone away. You can't do that, he said, eyes panicky. Why, the call could come any time. I might get the call any minute now. All at once, it happened. Ring went the telephone. The sound froze the sitter and the stander in their tracks. Time itself seemed to pause as the sitter looked down at the phone in his arms. He swallowed. I, oh my, he said, trembling. It's, it's finally happened. Oh, what an honor. I finally received the call. Carefully, gingerly, he picked up the receiver. Yes, he breathed into the mouthpiece. For a moment he listened. Then he tucked the receiver from his ear and stared at it. Anger gathering on his face. I don't believe it, he cried thrusting the receiver at the girl. It's, it's for you. Grabbing his iced tea and his first aid manual, the sitter stalked off. The stander chatted cheerily with the voice on the wire, as if she had been listening to it all her life. This is the kind of readiness that Jesus wanted from his disciples what he says it will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night but understand this if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming he would not have let his house be broken into you also must be ready because the son of man will come in an hour you don't expect him peter asked 
Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? Peter hears what's happening. And he says, hey, time, this, what you're telling us, are you telling this to everyone or just to us? Is this to believers in general or disciples, your followers, the 12 and maybe the 72 in particular? And Jesus answered his question. Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? Jesus applies this parable not to sheep, but to shepherds. And this becomes important because the parable is going to get kind of scary. And if you believe that it's applied to people in general, you're going to say, oh my goodness, I wonder if he's going to do that to me. But it's not directed at sheep. It's directed at shepherds, those who have been tasked to take something from the master and give it to the people. Now, in the first century, what a steward would do, a steward was a servant. So if you were a house, if you were the owner of a house and and an estate, you would have servants. And what you would do, you would select a servant or servants to kind of to be a middle manager, a steward. And the responsibility of that steward, you would give goods to that steward who would dispense them to the other servants so that the master, the house master, didn't need to do it himself. And if you were a steward, you were held responsible to take those goods that the master gave you and distribute them to the other servants in due time. And if you didn't, if you weren't faithful, well, that's what Jesus is going to go on and talk about. Um, actually, Paul describes what's, what stewardship looks like when it is applied to kind of God speaking to mankind. Paul writes, so then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust, when he talks about those who have been given a trust, he's talking about people who are stewards. And apparently what he understood that God gave to some individuals the responsibility to give his words to those God wanted to give the words to. This person is kind of like that steward. He takes things from the master and is responsible to give those things to the people that the master wants to speak to. And because he has this responsibility, he is treated a little bit differently. It is a privilege, but it's also a responsibility. And Paul writes, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. We've done this before. It's kind of fun when you do it. I'm not going to do it now. In fact, I did it, I did it at one time. I, we had a small group. And, um, and what you do to, to kind of, to, I whispered in the ear of somebody, the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. And there was, there was eight people around a table. And then that person whispered it in the next person's ear. And that person whispered it to the next person's ear, and it went around the table. And at the end, you didn't really get the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. It was something like, 
springtime is nice and it's bright outside. You know, you know, it just didn't, it doesn't translate very well. Um, but what God holds stewards accountable for is to hear what he says and say what he says. Don't change the message in order to please the people or in order to displease the people. What a steward is required is to listen and know what is the message and give it. And that's what a steward is held accountable to do. Paul says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear. Um, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Again, a steward is required to be faithful. And the faithfulness means taking the words and passing them on. Uh, Paul didn't look to people to validate. Now, I'm sure he said, liked it when somebody said, oh, Paul, great message. You know, you know, that's wonderful. He didn't validate himself based on if people liked it or not. His sense was... Did I pass on what I was given? And if he did, he felt good about things. Um, in fact, he says, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. This, when we did this thing around the table, I whispered in the air and then it went around and the last person said, this is what I heard. And the way you could tell how well the message was communicated is when I said, here is the message that I intended to say, that I said. And when you heard, this is what the message was in the beginning, and this is what the message has come to be, what you understand, whoa, something, what happened? Something was lost in the translation. And the only way you know that something was lost in the translation was when I said, here's what the message started out to be. That's going to happen at some point. Jesus is going to come back, and what he's going to do, he's going to say, this is the message that I wanted to be spoken. What is the message that people heard? And there is going to be, well, look what he says. Um, you can't really determine what's spiritually successful by what happens now. Some place might have really good programs, good things, bad things. I guess you know what it is that I think God would have a zero in on? Is when you go to a place that do you hear the truth? Not does there really good coffee or really good music. That's nice if there's good coffee, nice if there's good music. It really is. A lot of good things. Those are wonderful things that happened in a church and in a community. But you know what to, I think what he would tell us to put way up the top? And is the truth spoken? Because ultimately... The most valuable thing we've been given is a message. And when we take, keep room for that message in our heads, it starts to soften our heart. And, you know, naturally we're going to say, and I think the message has to do with the new covenant. And we take 
the message pretty seriously here. And I'm not, you're not the only place, but I, what I am going to say from the beginning, we have sought to protect the message because I think that's what we're supposed to do. At any rate, um, Jesus talks about uh, taking that pretty seriously. He says, um, it will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Continued management is, I guess, there's going to be some kind of recognition for those disciples, the original 12, and maybe past that. We don't know who took the message and really took seriously the privilege and responsibility of passing it on. And apparently, when Jesus comes back and our bodies are raised from the ground and those who have placed their faith in Christ, putting their trust in Christ for their eternal destiny, are going to go up. We're going to go up to be with him. And apparently in that place, there's going to be some type of task that somebody's going to do because God's going to give somebody responsibility. I think we don't know a bunch about heaven. It just doesn't give us a bunch of detail. All I know is that it's really going to be, well, it's going to feel like home, what we're going to say. And we've talked about it before. When we get there, I guarantee it. Well, I kind of guarantee it. What it's going to feel like, this is what I've always wanted. All those things, when I looked here and looked there and I looked around, this is what I was looking. Is it this is what I remember? We talked about that Sunday morning and we talked about that's what we're, yeah, exactly. Is this what you were looking for? This is exactly what I was looking for. I think that's what heaven is going to be like. It's going to be everything we always imagined. It's going to be, well, you know what it's going to be? Home. And you know we're going to figure out we spent most of our time on earth homesick. Homesick. This is what I was, this is what I wanted. A place where people don't die. A place where bodies don't break down. A place when there's the truth and there's no lies and there's no violence and there's no war. And there's no kids that are orphaned and walking around in the street. And people aren't trying to take over this and that in order to try to get their bond. You know what I mean? It's that heaven's not going to be like that. We're going to, oh, finally. But then Jesus turns, and this is where I want you to say, this gets kind of scary. And what I want you to say, I don't think, what Jesus says is meant for sheep. It's meant for shepherds. And listen to what he says. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men's servants and maid servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk. This is the middle manager who is saying, ah, fooch mood. I'm not going to feed anybody. I'm just going to get loaded. And I don't care about them anyways. The master's not coming. It's been three or four days. Um, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he is not aware of, what's that says? He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And again, I, we're not going to belabor this, but it, this is really a grisly kind of image. It's somebody, people say he will punish him, but it's a really strong thing. He'll cut him in half. Um, the Bible has stern warnings 
it seems. Um, here, being cut in half, it could refer to something physical. Probably not. What it's probably about, he will be severed from his connection with the people who will live with the master. He is cut off. Those stewards who misrepresent, it's at some point, they're, God takes that really seriously. Um, he ends up talking about others. Now, this guy is really abusive to beat. And then he ends up talking about those who aren't abusive, but they just, then he ends up saying that servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. For from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Those individuals to and through whom God gives his word to dispense, that's a, well, that's a trust that is serious. Well, to end, how do we apply this to us? couple of things. The Bible has stern warnings for those who claim to speak for God. And again, what I'm thinking of particularly is not just sharing with a friend, hey, this is what I think it says, and this is what I think. I think he's describing those who have trained themselves, are in a position where they claim to speak for God with some degree of authority. I think he's talking more about pastor types of people. And um, those who are shepherds, uh, those who claim to speak for God, God has some stern warnings. In fact, it's, it's what it says, James says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Um, some people are afraid of the unpardonable sin. Have you heard about that? The unpardonable sin, the sin that that God doesn't forgive. And I know some people who are concerned. I, geez, I wonder if I've committed it. I don't think the unpardonable sin is a sheep sin. I think it's a shepherd's sin. Here's what I think it is. There was, in Jesus' time, Pharisees who were the representatives. And if you wanted to know what God said, what you would do, you would look to the Pharisee and you would believe what the Pharisee said. So here's what happened. Jesus was up doing miracles. Obviously a miracle clearly a miracle. And the people knew that Jesus and the Pharisees didn't see eye to eye. And so they would look at the Pharisees and the Pharisees, no, and looking at Jesus and they were saying, boy, it sure looks like an authentic miracle. Um, and what ended up happening, they um, went toe to toe and the Pharisee ended up saying, what, what he just did, He's doing by the power of the devil. And what Jesus said, uh-oh. There is a sin that's forgiven, all kinds of forgivable sin, but there's an unpardonable sin. And I don't think you can't commit the unpardonable sin. I don't think. I think it's the first century. When somebody in a position of religious influence that people are looking to, to tell them what is right or wrong in that specific context for a Pharisee to say that's being done by the power of the devil. That's unpardonable. You know why it's unpardonable? Because Jesus is a shepherd. And he understands that sheep believe what shepherds say. 
And he knew that he was reflecting something true. And when he saw those shepherds go like this, and he saw the sheep look up, and they said, look like a miracle, but look at he's shaking his head. He says, that's unpardonable because I'm a shepherd and I care about sheep. I care about sheep. And I want sheep to know what it is that God told Jesus to say. And Jesus commissions other people to say, judge, then wherever you go, wherever you go as a place where you choose to congregate, to worship God, all kinds of good things in churches. What I'm going to tell you to do is this. When Love the truth. Love the truth. Value that highly. Because that's what Jesus, that's what he calls shepherds to do. Let's stand for closing prayer. Yeah, we, we see stuff like this. This story is kind of scary. Um, I, it, I think it gives us a little bit of relief that it's not, it's not pointed at all of us. It's pointed at those who claim to represent you. I don't know exactly what all that means, except that those to and through whom you, you send the word, there is a responsibility and a privilege at any rate. Would you continue to reveal yourself to us? Thanks for your word and that it's been preserved and we can have your words and look at them and think about them together both in a context like this and a more informal context for the next couple of weeks. At any rate, whether it be here or discussion, thanks for these individuals who are here. Um, not because there's a lot of yippy-dippy, zippy things happening here. I think people are here because they believe at some point that there's truth here. I pray that that would continue to be the case. Help us to protect the message in Jesus' name. Amen.